Welcome to the third Galley Beggar podcast. As you will hear in a minute, this is actually the second introduction I've recorded for this podcast. I recorded one a few weeks ago with Toby Litt when he was here signing copies of Patients. But now, uh, the 31st of October, Halloween in fact, I want to record a few more words to go before the introduction. Um, because I've now actually listened to what Toby said, and I want to give a bit of context, which is that Toby came round to, to sign copies of his amazing new novel, Patience, and then I set him up with this recorder, and I left him to record a few words, which I thought were going to be about Patience, but I had no idea what he was going to say. I've now, of course, listened and wanted to say a few words about what you're about to hear. Um, But I'm kind of, to be honest, lost for words because it's really something quite extraordinary, unusual, and not at all what I was expecting. So maybe, maybe I should just stay quiet in a way and let you be as surprised by it as I was. It's really quite something, and I, I hope it affects you in the way it affected me. When Toby was here, there was a thunderstorm, so listen out for that as well. All right, I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the third Galley Beggar podcast. I am here in Norwich on a rainy day with Toby Litt, who has just come to Galley Beggar headquarters to sign copies of his wonderful new novel, Patience, and he's going to tell us about doing nothing. About doing nothing. Could you just sit still for half an hour? Just that, sit still. Without distraction or interruption for 30 minutes. No phone, no screen, no music, no voices, could you? And if you did just sit still and do nothing, what do you think it would be like inside you? Do you think you'd be calm about the doing nothing? Or do you think, as is often the case with me, you would start to be overtaken by an anguish of impatience to do something, do anything, scratch jump up and scream, all of your head, every part of your body. Would it be calm and silent in the doing nothing? Or would it be filled with a rage to crack a joke, rejoin life? I'm going to talk for a little while about sitting still, doing nothing. First, I need to tell you a bit about how and why I started to do this doing nothing myself. And that's because I ended up being the particular kind of Buddhist I am, which is a Soto Zen Buddhist, in the lineage of a Japanese monk called Dogen, which is the kind of Buddhist who, generally, 
just sit still. Soto Zen Buddhism is a very minimal non-religion. It's a practice. Following it, if you can even say that, means as often as I'm able, usually once a day, I do something called Zazen, which is meditating of a particular kind. Zazen translates roughly from Japanese as just sitting. Half an hour a day of Zazen is my aim, and I meet it about 50% of the time. I just sit, facing a wall, or in my workroom, the bottom half of a green baize notice board. Why do I do this? Why do I waste my time doing nothing, producing nothing? This is hard to answer. I'm not sure myself. But the most direct way of putting it is that I agree with the Buddha, or at least I agree with what I've come to know about what he said through translations from Sanskrit into English. More exactly, I've come to agree with what the Buddha is said to have said about human suffering. I think it's the most practical and possibly the wisest thing anyone has said on the subject, the subject of humans as well as the subject of suffering. Before I talk about the Buddha and all that malarkey, I'd like to explain a little of how I came to this agreement with what he said. I didn't start out in a Buddhist family, very far from it. My father had no religious faith and did nothing like meditation, unless driving up and down the M1 and M6 for hours and days at a time, listening to Jimmy Stewart on Radio 2, put him into something like a trance. My father has always been fairly brutal about an afterlife. When I'm gone, just shove me in a box, have done with it. That kind of statement came up regularly during my boyhood. Suffering was something a man dealt with manfully by ignoring it, or saying bugger and hitting something inanimate. My mother's religious faith was always a mystery to me. She loved choral music in the Anglican tradition. As a girl growing up in Hereford, she sang in the Three Choirs Festival. I still have her score for Handel's Messiah. Then later on, she sang in the choir at St Albans Cathedral, St Albans, where she met and fell in love with my dad. They were married only 12 weeks later in a church. However, although I think my mother was secretly a bit mystical, I don't think she believed in God. When she was on her deathbed, in a hospice, no longer able to speak, hardly able to swallow, one of the nurses came in and asked if she'd like to see the vicar. Somehow, with a wry grimace and a flicking off a fly gesture of her thin fingers, my mother made it perfectly clear she had absolutely no need for him or his buzzing sort. Everyone in the room laughed. This was probably the last joke my mother ever made. After this, she soon stopped communicating. I'm going to have to return to her deathbed a bit later on, in reference to just sitting, doing nothing. After meeting in St Albans, my parents moved to Amptill, Bedfordshire. This was so they could run an antique shop in Dunstable Street. I spent my first five years living in the small flat above the shop. We stayed in Amptill during the 1970s and 80s. Amptill is a village, much larger now than it used to be. It centres on a crossroads with a weather vane top clock tower in the middle. 
There are two big parks, the Firs and Amptill Park, very different places. One, a scrubby heath, the Firs, and the other, the park, an elegant country park. And there were plenty of other green spots, some of which are still accessible. And so I found Amptill a wonderful place whilst I was into climbing trees and playing war games in the semi-wild. Once I got into bands and the idea of girls, the idea of having a girlfriend and not being lonely as only a Cocteau Twins fan can be lonely, I found Amptill a crappy place. I couldn't talk about Keats's poetry with a tree. Amptill was boring. Also, I wasn't really all that safe in Amptill. I went to state schools until I was 11 years old, then a single private school until I was 17. This change from Alameda School to Bedford Modern School meant, in the eyes of the kids I'd been playing football with a few weeks before, that I'd suddenly become posh. This in turn meant that if I was spotted on the streets of Amptill, I might be shouted at or roughed up. All this is really to say that after starting at Bedford Modern School, I spent a lot of time in my bedroom, either there or at my friend Luke's house. Luke had been my best friend since I was four. We both went to Russell Primary School, although I'm told we first met in the bakery on Dunstable Street, within sight of the antique shop my father and mother owned and ran, and above which I lived with my two younger sisters. Me and Luke had climbed a lot of trees and won a lot of actionous battles together. Luke was a genius. At least, that's how he seemed to me. I admired and adored him. He came up with the best ideas for games. Later on, he played piano. He wrote poems and songs. He read books I wouldn't otherwise have heard of. Jack Kerouac's Dharma Bums, for example. And among the ones I borrowed and read were Lobsang Ramper's books, The Third Eye, The Saffron Robe, and You Forever. These detailed the life and training of a Tibetan Buddhist monk and were full of saffron robes and astral travel, tsampa and flags flying above the patala in Lhasa. I found out a little later that they were bogus, not written by a Tibetan lama at all, but by an English plumber. Luke's productivity, the boxes of poems on narrow-lined A4 paper, the concept albums recorded directly onto C90 cassettes, became greater the closer his parents got to divorce. Around the age of 12 or 13, Luke took up TM, Transcendental Meditation. He learned this from someone, a guru I suppose, based in Milton Keynes. Luke's mother must have driven him to and from the meditation sessions. He learned something called mindful breathing, which today has taken over the corporate world as mindfulness. It's a very simple thing to do. You probably tried it. You sit as comfortably as you can and pay close, gentle attention to your in-breaths and out-breaths. In-breaths and out-breaths. You count them in groups of ten. With Luke, I and my other friends would sit, sticks of spiritual sky incense spreading layers of smoke out across his tidy attic room, chasing something, I don't know what. Cut to years later. I was in Edinburgh for the book festival, now in my thirties. I'd started writing, like Luke did, 
and had stuck to it until it became just about everything. At this time, I was putting together the stories that made up the book called I Play the Drums in a Band Called OK. From story to story, the main character, Clap, becomes a practicing Buddhist. I decided to go to a taster session, I think it was called that, run by the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. We sat on squishy, saffron-coloured zafu cushions on oblong mats. A Buddhist nun took us through a basic form of meditation. A small brass bell was rung when the time was up. I expected it all to be quite new and strange, but it was pretty much exactly what Luke had brought back from Milton Keynes to Amptill 20 years earlier. It was familiar. It was what I'd done when I'd done what I called meditating during the years in between. After this, a little embarrassed, I bought a mat and a zafu and a little pyramid that goes ding when 20 minutes are up. We're now coming to the point I described in my book Restliana, which Galley Beggar published last year. The Totley Barton Centre, this bit reads, in Devon, is a medium-sized white farmhouse that once belonged to the poet Ted Hughes. I was there in the summer of 2005 with the novelist Ali Smith, teaching a residential creative writing course for the Arvon Foundation. Both Ali and I had novels that had been entered for that year's Booker Prize. Hers was called Hotel World, mine was called Ghost Story. We also shared the same publisher and the same editor. I tried to prevent myself going too often to the computer in the centre's office and checking the Booker website to see if the long list had been announced. I'd wanted to avoid knowing when the announcement would be made. I knew it was imminent. One morning, halfway through the week, Ali, who hadn't been going to the centre's office at all, got a phone call. Then another phone call. Then another I knew this because at Totley Barton there is only one small patch of grass within which you could get a phone signal and that patch was right outside the converted goose shed in which I dormed. Ali was on the phone all morning. My phone did not ring. When I checked the website, Hotel World was long-listed. Ghost Story wasn't. For the rest of the week, Ali was extraordinary. She didn't tell the Avon students of her listing. She commiserated with me in a way I found genuinely consoling. On the morning she spoke on the phone to everyone congratulating her, I was fiercely jealous. I was burning with resentment. So I went for a walk. I'd been to Totley Barton before and I knew there was a longish hike down high hedged country lanes that took you round in a big circuit. It was what I needed. I set off. The day was blue sky gorgeous. I tried to let it cheer me up, but I just became angrier and angrier. I was a failure. My efforts to write the novel had been a waste. If I couldn't even get long-listed, and it was a long, long list, what was the point? Ghost Story was just as good as Hotel World, wasn't it? Perhaps it wasn't. Perhaps I was rubbish and no one had told me. Perhaps I should give up writing, but Ghost Story wasn't a bad book, round and round. The same thoughts. I knew that this was an important moment. I wasn't sure I'd ever write a better book than Ghost Story. So this might have been my last chance to win a big literary prize and become one of those writers who seem for a while to be everywhere, to be the writer everyone should read. And who, 
for the rest of their writing lives can be reasonably certain of being published and making a living and having a house that doesn't need a lot of fixing. I felt shit. I kept walking. And then, fairly desperately, I remembered what are known as the Buddha's Four Noble Truths. I knew about the first truth, which said that suffering was inevitable, and the second truth that explained how suffering arose, that suffering comes from not getting what you want. I was so jealous of Ali, one of the people I like best in the world, and so angry that my own book, that I hadn't been recognised, that I was suffering an extraordinary amount of pain. Unnecessary pain. I looked at the green hedgerows and kept walking. Everything around me looked wonderful. It was a fantastic day. I was healthy. My family was safe. Not a word of my book or Ali's book was different than it had been before. Why was I angry? What exactly did I want? Wasn't I right then the clearest possible example of suffering through wanting something intangible? I'd allowed myself to become attached to something non-existent. And now I was suffering not because of anything I'd lost, but because of not having gained this non-existent thing. Being long-listed would have been good for my writing career, but I doubted it would have boosted me as much as not being long-listed was killing me. I decided to accept I wasn't going to be a winner. Not just in this case, with this prize, but possibly, probably, with every prize from now on. It would be too much to say that I came back from that walk a Buddhist. But I had wrestled with myself, and the only thing that had given me any purchase was an idea of the Buddha's. I thought his truths might have some truth in them. I always felt this section of the book was truncated and isolated. The Buddhist thing isn't really mentioned afterwards. If anyone was curious about whether I'd followed through on my insight, they wouldn't really have got an answer. Both after and before this moment, you can call it an epiphany if you like, I read a number of books on Buddhism, and more specifically Zen Buddhism. I hated the idea of spiritual shopping. I wasn't looking to curate a bespoke set of religious practices. Whatever it was, I should go to it rather than expect it to come to me. The two most important books, as I think they are to a lot of Zen Buddhists, were Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Shunyo Suzuki and The Path is the Goal, a basic handbook of Buddhist meditation by Chogyam Trungpa. Don't know if I pronounce those right. With both, I found bits of them very annoying and slightly evasive or vague, but I read and reread them. By now I must have read the Suzuki book five or six times. What they both emphasised, and what I was eventually convinced by, was that the point of Zazen, of the sitting still, was not to try to gain anything. It wasn't about achieving enlightenment, or finding peace of mind, or better core strength, or better sleep. The purpose of Zazen was Zazen. The Buddha's Four Noble Truths, as summarised in Damien Keown's Buddhism, a very short introduction, are these. 1. Life is suffering. 2. Suffering is caused by craving. 3. 
suffering can have an end and for there is a path which leads to the end of suffering. I wasn't sure that all life was suffering. Some of my life seemed to have been fairly pleasant and without a downside. But I knew for certain that a lot of my suffering was caused by craving, fame, praise, money, love. So I started to find those so-called truths convincing, undeniable. Other religions acknowledge suffering, but then divert you into attending places of worship and deepening your faith through being public about it. Buddhism, by contrast, gave a practical inner method for dealing with the arising of suffering. It didn't require attendance anywhere or a profession of faith. It didn't require any metaphysical beliefs. My suffering during the Arvon week had been exacerbated by a purely artificial desire. I couldn't do anything about it until I found that I could. I was ridiculous in my own eyes. After that week, I was what you might call a back bedroom Buddhist. I did the zazen, read the books, but eventually I wanted to make some form of contact with other people doing the same thing, people who might have reached the same point. One of the Buddhist sayings goes, I take refuge in the Buddha, I take refuge in the Dharma, I take refuge in the Sangha. The Dharma is another word for the way, the following of whatever it is. The Sangha is the Buddhist community. I had no community. I had my Buddha statue, my mat and my Zafu. I was already fairly sure that the kind of Buddhism that accorded most closely with the Four Noble Truths, as I understood them, was Soto Zen Buddhism. This isn't anything pure. The Buddha lived near what is in the present-day Varanasi in the north of India. His teaching then passed through China, where it became Chan Buddhism, and then Japan, where that was changed to Zen. The version I had picked up was the export version that reached America in the 1950s, influenced by the beat writers, and then became popular again in the 1970s and 80s. Both Zen mind, beginner's mind, and the path is the goal. That's thunder. Both Zen mind and beginner's mind, and the path is the goal, take the form of transcribed talks to American students of Zen. They're occasionally punctuated by lines like, well, there's a difference between sitting and hanging out in the American idiom. The term hanging out means something like grooving on your own scene. First, in looking for the Sangha, I went along to the Jamyang Buddhist Centre near Elephant and Castle in London. The event was a talk by an American nun. There was a very large gold statue of the Buddha and an altar of saffron and gold, but throughout her talk the nun went on about gains, gains from practice, gains of calm and happiness. I realised I didn't need to make a choice. I'd already decided. I wasn't engaged in spiritual shopping because I was already sold on one very specific non-goal-oriented version of Buddhism. No gains. If you're after gains, you're in the wrong place. Noble truth too. Suffering is caused by craving. It seemed very clear to me that craving for peace of mind was a craving like any other. You could say this was a good thing if it prompted you to do zazen. But it was still a wish for gain, and that wish, either when fulfilled or thwarted, returned you to craving again, to more suffering. Only a form of Buddhism that promised nothing 
would fit with these words, the second of the Four Noble Truths. As far as I could see, if you sit down to meditate in hopes of achieving enlightenment, then you're about as far from enlightenment as you could possibly be. This may seem a bit Jesuitical. It brings a person to a difficult point. You must not desire, not to desire, not to desire, etc. Something like that. What simplifies things is the practice. You do the sitting. You do the doing nothing. And at moments, completely unpredictably, you fall into something I can only describe as enlightenment. It goes, though. It goes quickly. I'm not saying that I'm enlightened, as if that's a permanent state of smug spiritual achievement. I've just come to conclude what was obvious even in the titles of the first books I read. Zen mind is beginner's mind, and the path is the goal. Shunyo Suzuki said, The most important thing is to forget all gaining ideas, all dualistic ideas. In other words, just practice Zazen in a certain posture. Do not think about anything. Just remain on your cushion without expecting anything. That's page 49 of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. When you've spent many years distorting yourself into as many grotesque postures of originality as possible, it is an abrupt, sobering thing to realise someone was a lot more right than you will ever be by being simple and obvious. You do have to go to it, whatever it is, rather than expecting it to come to you, or for you to be able to invent it from scratch. What I went to was this. An impure Buddhism, beginning with a curious encounter with the bogus texts of Lobsang Rampa, the second-hand mindful breathing of transcendental meditation, then through words that had travelled through India, China, Japan and America before reaching England. The dojo I attend has its administrative head in France. I'm not saying that if you yourself are doing meditation in hopes of achieving or practising mindfulness, you're doing something actively bad. However, I am made uneasy when I hear people talking about the benefits they feel from learning to meditate. They talk about it as if it were eating muesli or going to the gym. What this means is that these people will judge each session of mindfulness as if it could be successful or unsuccessful as if it might give them value added or not, as if it might contribute to their general state of wellness or not. I agree with an American Buddhist nun, Geshin Claire Greenwood, who said, fuck wellness. Wellness is capitalism trying to sell you back the sanity it stole from you. Zen doesn't pacify me or make me politically neutral or stop me saying fuck. I hate Donald Trump. I'm disgusted by Boris Johnson, but I know Donald Trump is a transitory phenomenon, however appalling. And I know Boris Johnson is suffering and not particularly well able to deal with his suffering, except by making other people suffer. The cruelty is the point. Zazen allows me to see the insane pressures I put on myself to be productive in every waking moment, to improve who I am, to deserve more love, to defer death. I'm left alone with my own impatience and quite frequently it terrifies me. The desire to scratch, 
jump up and scream, crack a joke, rejoin life. I'm sure I've said some of this wrong. I'm sure I'll disagree with some of what I've said here in a few years' time. If all this sounds pointless or silly to you, if it seems pretentious or a waste of time, then you clearly shouldn't be a Buddhist. Or perhaps, a proper Buddhist would say, infuriatingly, you're not yet ready to be a Buddhist. Hmm. I've said that Zazen isn't about gain, but that doesn't mean I feel I've gained nothing from it. On the contrary, without Zazen, I don't think I'd have been capable of writing patience. Not only does the first image of the book, the white wall, Eliot is sitting in his wheelchair, facing, looking at, originate from Zazen, but the whole attitude of receptivity, of seeing what's there and then seeing more, I wouldn't have been capable of accepting something so simple a decade ago. I wouldn't have trusted it to hold the reader's attention. I'd have wanted to show off a lot more, to do my little dance, seeking approval. That's not to say Eliot is an accidental Buddhist. No, he's full of desires for sensual experience, for freedom, for friendship. But he does know about suffering and facing suffering through sitting. He has no choice. I said that I go back to my mother's deathbed. Not that I really want to, of course. Those were the worst days of my life, but they contained one of the few times where I felt I did the right thing. Here's why. My mother was perhaps ten days from death. I know this because her bed was still alongside the wall rather than moved to the middle of the room as it was later. She was on a normal mattress, not that inflatable thing that was soon to make an endless wheeze. She had stopped eating, but had yet to stop drinking. She was small, getting smaller, and she was exhausted. Cancer of the womb was pulling her into herself like a black hole. I went to visit, just me. It was afternoon, grey light. There was snow on the ground outside, but if she lived for a couple more weeks it would be spring and daffodils. When I arrived I could tell she was too tired to talk, so I didn't talk. She knew I was there but I didn't hold her hand. I had the chair near to the top end of the bed where her bald head was, and I closed my eyes and just sat, doing nothing. I was a bit worried someone would come in, one of the nurses, but after a while I forgot that and was able to just sit. I think my mother dozed, knowing her son was there. I was there, and she was there, and I didn't ask if there was anything I could do for her or burden her with telling her that I loved her again, as I'd done before. I think, from what I've seen, that that, that declaration, is very exhausting for someone edging into death. They have to return in order to reciprocate. So I just sat. And when I got up to go, the light now dark grey, not intending to wake her, though thinking it might be the last time I'd see her. She said, weakly, but clearly, you're very understanding. In this case, doing nothing was better than all the somethings I could have done. Or so I felt. <laughs>